is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Alex Longlinay. With us today is Anubhav Vasudevan, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. And he is here to talk to us about probability and determinism. Anubhav Vasudevan, welcome. Thank you. A lot of ink has been spilled in philosophy over how to interpret probability. You know, when I say there is a 50% chance that it'll rain tomorrow, what does that statement mean? What's the philosophical problem about how to interpret probability? Why is that difficult to explain? So I think in trying to understand the problems that arise in interpreting probability, it's best to think about the historical origins of the varying conceptions of probability. Um, What sorts of conceptual difficulties prompted these different conceptions of probability? And in that regard, I think it's best to start with a discussion of determinism, because ultimately, I think certain conceptions of probability, in particular the subjective or epistemic conception of probability. Historically speaking, from a historical point of view, one of the reasons, one of the principal reasons for interpreting probability in subjective or epistemic terms, and I'll say a bit more about what that means later on, one of the principal historical reasons for adopting an epistemic conception of probability was to try to reconcile the idea that we may live in a deterministic world with the manifest fact that certain events occur with a less than maximal degree of probability. I think the best place to start maybe is with an account of what determinism is, and then to see how the tension might arise between that conception of determinism and certain interpretations of probability. So determinism is the view that every fact about the world can in principle be deduced from certain facts about the prior state of the world in combination with an account of the dynamical laws that govern its evolution. So for example, if we consider particles of gas in a box, and we assume that these particles are governed by, say, the classical Newtonian laws of motion, then, in principle at least, from those laws of motion, one can deduce from an account of the initial positions and velocities of the particles in the box what their positions and velocities will be at any later point in time. So in this sense, this box of gas comprises, if you like, a locally deterministic system. So there's another characterization of determinism, and I think it's this characterization of determinism that I'd like to focus on in our discussion this afternoon, according to which determinism is the view which rules out the possibility of chance happenings, that is, events which happen by chance. Now, if a chance happening is understood simply to mean an event which has no determinative causal antecedent, then these two conceptions of determinism more or less come together. Where this characterization of determinism gets its substance is when we interpret the notion of chance. We give to it an independent interpretation in terms of the associated notion of probability. So, for instance, we take a chance happening to be an event which occurs with something less than maximal probability. So... When we interpret chance happenings this way, and we take determinism to be the view which rejects the occurrence of such happenings, then what we end up with is an account of determinism according to which no event occurs with less than maximal probability. Any event which occurs, occurs with probability one. So if this is our conception of determinism, then it seems as if there's a kind of problem that we have to deal with, because at least intuitively, there are many, many events which occur with less than maximal probability. So the least controversial examples, of course, 
arise in the context of simple games of chance, such games as involve, say, the tossing of coins or the casting of dice or the drawing of cards from a shuffle deck. In these contexts, it seems manifestly obvious that certain events occur with, say, intermediate degrees of probability. When I toss a coin, if the coin is symmetrical, if it's tossed with sufficient initial velocity onto, say, a hard surface like a tabletop, then it's intuitively clear that the probability that the coin should land showing heads is one half, or at least approximately one half. But it's absurd to think that this kind of mundane, almost obvious observation in itself constitutes some kind of demonstration of the indeterminacy of the world. Presumably the question of determinism is to be referred to the expertise of physicists, not to gamblers. We can't simply point to the fact that the probability of a fair coin's landing heads is one half and say, well, we've proven thereby that uh, the world is not a deterministic place. (laughs) It seems like a, a not quite adequate proof. Yeah, so I guess we have these two different intuitions about tossing a coin. Uh, So the one set of intuitions would be, look, there's a 50-50 chance that it'll come up heads. There's no way to predict that in advance. And then the other set of intuitions would be like, well, if we had complete information about the coin and we were omniscient physicists or something and we knew everything about the laws of mechanics, it would be determined right now, even before I throw the coin, whether it's going to land heads or tails. Well, these two, so these two competing intuitions, as you describe them, don't, strictly speaking, conflict. And in fact, what you've tacitly done is interpret probabilities in epistemic or subjective terms. Right? And th- that device itself allows us to kind of avoid the apparent tension that might seem to exist between determinism and chance happenings. Where the tension exists right, is when we interpret probability uh, not in epistemic or subjective terms, but rather as a property, a physical property, let's say, of the behavior of a chance mechanism, a physical system in the world. Right? So, for instance, when I say that the probability of a fair coin's landing heads is one half, if we interpret that claim as a claim about the physical apparatus employed in performing this experiment, then it seems we may have some conceptual tension that we have to resolve. Right? I just want to point out that the earliest theorists of probability were kind of keenly aware of this potential difficulty. So figures such as Leibniz and Bernoulli and especially Laplace, who all made seminal contributions to the mathematical theory of probability, were at the same time committed and, in fact, ardent determinists, right? To take one point in case, indeed, it's Laplace who has given us what I think is perhaps the most evocative characterization of determinism, one which you kind of tacitly referred to just a moment ago in your question. And if I just read this, uh, here's a quote. So this is a quote from Laplace. He says, um, Given for one instant an intelligence which could comprehend all the forces by which nature is animated and the respective situation of the beings who compose it, an intelligence sufficiently vast to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in the same formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the lightest atom. For it, nothing would be uncertain, and the future as the past would be present to its eyes. So this expresses a fairly deep commitment on the part of Laplace to a deterministic conception of the world. Right? But what's interesting about this quote, apart from its poetic expression, I suppose, is that it appears in the introductory chapter of his essay on probabilities. So now the tension is, is right there for us. Right? If we accept that the world is as Laplace takes it to be, if we accept that the world is really this deterministic place, then what are we to make of the results of these probabilistic calculations which comprise the remainder of this particular work? When Laplace engages in all these sometimes sophisticated mathematical deductions and infers from these deductions the probabilities of events, what exactly is he claiming? And how can those claims be reconciled with his explicit commitment to a deterministic metaphysics? So in response to this apparent tension, the move made by the early theorists of probability was to adopt an epistemic conception of probability. That is, a conception of probability according to which judgments of probability express claims not about the physical world, but rather about a rational agent state of knowledge. So, for example, when I say that the probability of a fair coin 
landing heads when tossed is one half, I'm not expressing any fact about the actual physical apparatus employed in this coin tossing experiment, but I'm rather expressing a fact about what it would be rational for me to believe about the outcome of this experiment, or if you like, uh, how much confidence I ought to invest in the claim that the coin will land heads, given my admittedly partial and imperfect state of knowledge. So in particular, the reason that I ought to assign an equal probability to these two claims is that my epistemic state can be characterized in some sense as a state of uniform ignorance. So now we have these kinds of two conceptions, two competing conceptions of probability on the table. Right? We have an objective or a physical conception of probability, where probabilities are in a certain sense meant to make quantitatively precise the chanciness of chance events. And on the other hand, we have this kind of subjective or epistemic conception of probability, according to which probabilities measure the rational degrees of confidence that we ought to invest in claims, and are thereby relative to our own epistemic states. So in the case of the coin toss, as you pointed out earlier, uh, if I were to learn more, say, about the initial conditions of the coin toss, then perhaps my probabilities in this epistemic or subjective sense would change. So we now have two different conceptions of probability on the table. So according to what you call the epistemic version, when I say that the chance of a coin coming up heads is 50-50, where I'm at least tacitly referring to facts about the information that I have prior to the flip, facts about what it would be rational for me to believe, given what I know about the coin, etc. And on the objective conception, chance is actually a real feature of the world. It's not just a fact about my epistemic states. So it seems like, given determinism, that the epistemic conception just does the trick. Yeah, it does. So I think that's right, that if we are to interpret probabilities in epistemic terms, then this gives us a way of avoiding the apparent conflict between positing a deterministic system of laws that govern the world at the microphysical level and admitting the possibility of chance events, events of non-maximal probability. Because in this case, like you said, judgments of probability now are not about the physical world, they're about our own epistemic states, right? our states of knowledge. I think there are reasons, though, for resisting this kind of move. So the most obvious reason, in a way, is just that it seems a fairly remarkable claim to make, that when I assess the probability, say, that a fair coin landed heads as one half, I'm not making a claim about the coin itself, right, or about the coin tossing process. I'm rather somehow articulating the structure of my own ignorance. It's important to distinguish between the fairly trivial, uh, sort of obvious claim that whether or not I'm justified in making a certain judgment of probability depends upon what I know about the world. Right? And the further claim that when I make a judgment of probability, the claim itself is about my epistemic state. This is an important distinction to draw. Right? Take the analogy to the case of, of ordinary, if you like, full belief. It's obviously true that whether or not we're justified in believing a claim depends in large part on what it is we know about the world. Nevertheless, we don't think that all of our beliefs about the world have as part of their content some implicit reference to what it is that we know. And that's the claim that's being made here. Right? The epistemic interpretation of probability is taking the view that judgments of probability themselves, the content of those judgments, make implicit reference to an agent's state of knowledge. And that's something that I think we might want to resist, intuitively at least. It seems to me obvious that um, when I toss a coin and I say that the coin is fair, I'm making a claim about the coin itself. I'm making a claim about the coin, or if you like, the behavior of the coin tossing process, perhaps if repeated ad infinitum. I'm making some claim about the physical structure of uh, the chance scenario. Right? And I'm not simply reporting some fact, maybe some normative fact, about my own epistemic state. So intuitively, I think we'd like to, if possible, adopt an objective or physical interpretation of probability, at least 
as it pertains to judgments involving the outcomes of simple games of chance. That being said, there is a problem that we have to resolve. <laughs> Namely, we have to explain how it is that we can interpret probabilities in physical terms or in objective terms without, so to speak, stepping on the toes <laughs> of the determinist. Right? So it seems like another option might be to just go the other way and say, okay, the universe is indeterministic. So we'll hold on to the idea that there are objective probabilities, which is to say, if I say there's a 50% chance that the coin will come up heads, that is a statement about the coin and about the physical mechanisms that let the coin flip and bounce off the table and so forth. Not a statement about me or my ignorance. Yeah. What happens if we go that route? Well, I mean, so one point to make is that in the account that I just gave about the intuitive basis for thinking the probabilities, at least as they arise in the context of simple games of chance, uh, express objective or physical facts about the world, I wasn't presupposing in any way that the world is a deterministic place. Right? The idea is rather that the question of determinism or indeterminism is neither here nor there, so to speak. So the intuitive claim that probabilities, as they arise in the context of simple games of chance, are objective, shouldn't settle the matter one way or the other as to whether or not the world is deterministic or indeterministic. If you want to believe that the world is indeterministic, that's fine. If you want to believe that the world is deterministic, that's fine. In either event, your belief shouldn't be based on the fairly obvious and mundane fact that in the context of simple games of chance, it appears as if events occur with objective probabilities less than one. So the reason that I bring up this whole story about the apparent tension between determinism and objective chance and the role that that apparent tension played in forcing the early theorists of probability towards a more subjective or epistemic conception of probability, what I ultimately want to argue or suggest here, rather, is that, that this apparent tension between determinism and probability, even in an objective or physical sense, is an illusion, right? That in fact, it's an illusion whose credibility derives from an intuitively plausible but ultimately mistaken conception of the content of probability judgments, and in particular, the relationship between the content of those judgments and the content of, say, non-probabilistic judgments of categorical fact. So to bring out the point, let's just go back to the case of tossing the coin. It's a simple kind of case. And let's think a little bit more about, about what it is that prompts us to think that the probability with which the coin will end heads is one half and the probability with which it will end tails is one half. So in the case of tossing a coin, I think the reason that we're intuitively prompted to assign an equal probability to the two possible outcomes of the toss right, is that we recognize in the physical experiment a certain kind of symmetry. The symmetry can be characterized by the intuition that whatever differences may exist between the head side of the coin and the tail side of the coin, these differences are irrelevant for assessing the probability with which the two outcomes of the toss will obtain. So that's an intuition that we have. Why is it that that intuition seems to conflict with a belief in determinism? So the intuition in this case, it's a judgment of symmetry. It's a recognition that whatever differences there may be between the two possible outcomes of the coin toss, those differences are irrelevant for assessing the relative probabilities. The reason that that intuition seems to conflict with determinism is because, presumably, if the coin tossing process is a deterministic process, then there are facts about the initial state of the coin, perhaps its relative position in your hand, its distance above the table, the initial velocity imparted to it, which we take to determine the outcome of the toss. So let's, for the sake of the argument, suppose that those initial conditions determine that the coin will land heads. Well, if that's the case, then certainly there are certain facts about the head side of the coin, which don't hold true of the tail side of the coin, which are relevant for deducing that the former and not the latter will land showing face up. So if that's the case, then it seems obvious that whatever those differences are between the head side of the coin and the tail side of the coin, which are relevant, again, for deducing what the outcome of the toss will in fact be, those differences also should be relevant for assessing the relative probabilities of those two outcomes. So there's an assumption here that we're making which can be expressed generally in general terms as follows. If some information is relevant for deducing which of a number of events will in fact occur, 
then that information is relevant for assessing the relative probabilities of these events. Why is this a plausible assumption? I think the reason this is a plausible assumption is that we generally tend to take deductive reasoning as just an extreme variety of probabilistic inference. So the judgments that result from causal deductions are interpreted, then, as just extreme judgments of probability. When I deduce that the coin will, in fact, land heads by means of some, say, complicated causal deduction from the initial conditions of the coin toss, again, in combination with my knowledge of the physical laws governing the coin toss, then the judgment which results from this is itself just a kind of degenerate judgment of probability. It's a judgment which assigns to that event, that the coin landed heads, a probability of one. So there's a tacit assumption that's implicit in this initial tension that we recognize between determinism on the one hand and the belief in objective probability, or at least the belief in events occurring with some intermediate degree of objective probability. Implicit in that apparent tension is a certain assumption to the effect that the judgments which arise as a result of deductions, so judgments that say of full belief, if you like, categorical judgments of fact, are themselves just an extreme variety of probabilistic judgment. And it's that point that I think I'd like to challenge. In particular, I'd like to argue that, that judgments of probability have a more complicated structure than this simple model would suggest. So if we accept this simple model of the relationship between the content of judgments of probability and judgments of full belief, then we're led to the conclusion that the content of a judgment of probability can be individuated in terms of A, a proposition of the sort which we could invest full belief in, and some number, which then determines the probability that we assign to this proposition. Full belief arises simply when that number is equal to one. So this is the kind of model of the content of probability judgments, which I think is in fact implicitly supposed in the apparent tension that we perceive between determinism on the one hand and events occurring with intermediate degrees of objective probability on the other. So I want to argue that this is wrong. This kind of model of the content of judgments of probability is inadequate. So you want to argue that although it's tempting to think of deductive reasoning as an extreme case of probabilistic reasoning, namely probabilistic reasoning with complete certainty or something, although it's intuitive to think of it in that way, that's a mistake. So what would be some examples of deductive reasoning versus probabilistic reasoning? Okay, well, so here's a kind of intuitive example which I think suggests the sort of model that I'd like to argue against. So so consider the following simple deductive argument. Premise one, a ball is drawn at random from an urn. Premise two, the urn contains only black balls. Conclusion, the ball drawn is black. This is a straightforward kind of syllogistic inference. You can model it even in Aristotle's syllogistic theory of deduction. Now consider this probabilistic variant of the argument. Premise one, a ball is drawn at random from an urn. Premise two, the proportion of black to white balls in the urn is P. Conclusion, the probability that a black ball is drawn from the urn is P. Now, intuitively at least, it might be tempting to think that the first argument is really just a particular instance of the second, where the value of p is set to 1. Instead of saying the proportion of black to white balls in the urn is p, we set p to 1, and the premise turns out to be all the balls in the urn are black. These kinds of examples do seem to suggest that deductive arguments, syllogistic arguments of the earlier form, are in fact just a special case of probabilistic reasoning. So on the one hand, we have this deductive argument. Premise 1, a ball is drawn at random from the urn. Premise two, all of the balls in the urn are black. Conclusion, the ball drawn is black. And we have this probabilistic variant of that argument. Premise one, a ball is drawn at random from the urn. Premise two, the proportion of black to white balls in the urn is P. Conclusion, the probability that a black ball is drawn is P. And the intuition, again, is that the former argument is just a particular instance of the latter. In particular, 
it's the latter argument where the value of p is set to 1. I think that's actually mistaken. That's a misleading way of thinking about the relationship between these two arguments. What's misleading about that particular view about the relationship between the two arguments is that there's a certain ambiguity in the major premise of the probabilistic variant of the argument, which uh, may not be immediately apparent upon first inspection. So let me give you a different example. Consider the following proposition. A fair coin is tossed 10 times. Five of the tosses result in heads. This, I take it, is a semantically unambiguous proposition. There's no question as to what it would mean to believe that this proposition were true. But when we ask, what's the probability of this claim, it turns out that there's a certain ambiguity in the question. It's not entirely clear what it is that we're asking. So at first blush, it may appear as if this sort of claim admits of an unambiguous probabilistic assessment. There's a straightforward way to assess the probability of the claim. Right? Assuming, for instance, that what it means for a coin to be fair is that on any given toss, the probability of its landing heads is 1 half, then we can assess this claim. The coin is tossed 10 times. Five of the tosses landed heads as follows. Uh, there are 2 to the 10 possible sequences of 10 coin tosses. Some proportion of those sequences will satisfy the description exactly five coins landed heads. And the probability is simply the number of those cases divided by 2 to the 10. So this would be the standard way that you would compute the probability of this proposition, for instance, if it were presented to you in an introductory class on probability. In fact, this is the kind of question which might even be listed as an exercise in a kind of introductory probability textbook. But what I want to point out is that, in fact, in computing the probability this way, we're introducing, we're implicitly introducing additional structure which isn't, strictly speaking, implied simply by the proposition whose probability we're asked to assess. So to bring out this additional structure, suppose now that you're informed that the 10 coin tosses arose in the context of the following kind of experiment. Uh, let's say Alex is the one who's tossing the coins. Suppose that now you're informed that in tossing these 10 coins, Alex was in fact carrying out the following instruction. Toss the coin repeatedly until exactly five heads appear, and then stop. Right? If this is the rule that you assume Alex is following in carrying out the experiment, then when we assess the probability of the claim, the coin is tossed 10 times, five of those times resulted in heads, we get a different value than what we obtained before. Right? The reason being that now, for instance, we rule out the possibility of the last coin toss being anything other than heads, because if it were something other than heads, the experiment would continue. Right? And we introduce new possibilities of the experiment continuing beyond 10 coin tosses. So what we see here is that in our original assessment of the probability of the claim, the coin was tossed 10 times, five of the tosses resulted in heads, we were implicitly assuming that the 10 coin tosses arose as part of an experiment in which the coin was to be tossed 10 times, and then the experiment would stop. Right? But that claim is not, strictly speaking, part of the propositional content of the claim that the coin is tossed 10 times and it landed heads five times. In other words, what we were assuming in the original probabilistic assessment is that had the fifth heads occurred prior to the tenth toss, then the coin still would have been tossed 10 times. But that modal assumption, I think it's pretty clear that that modal assumption is not part of the actual content of the claim. The coin is tossed 10 times, and it lands heads five times. Right? So here what we see is we have a semantically unambiguous proposition, but we can't yet assess its probability in any meaningful way. Right? What we need in order to assess its probability is to embed it within some richer modal structure. More specifically, what we need to do is we need to interpret the proposition as describing the outcome of a certain chance process. And the kind of ambiguity that this example averts to results from the fact that one and the same proposition can describe the outcomes of multiple different chance processes. But we can't assess the probability of that proposition until one of those descriptions is chosen. And so what this whole discussion is meant to illustrate is that the content of probability judgments is in fact more complicated than one might initially suppose. In fact, 
the objects of probabilistic assessment are not propositional contents. At least they're not the sorts of propositional contents which we can come to believe to be true as the result of some deduction. They're rather propositions which are embedded within a kind of procedural context. Propositions understood to describe the outcome of a certain chance process. So the upshot of all of this is that probabilistic reasoning and deduction are really very different modes of inference. And it's in this conceptual space between the two that we can find room for objective chance in a deterministic world. The judgment that the probability of a fair coin's landing heads is one half is no more in conflict with the deduction from initial conditions of the coin toss resulting in a claim to the effect that the coin will land heads than it is in conflict with observing that the coin has landed heads after the toss has been made. If I were to observe that the coin landed heads after it had been tossed, this by itself doesn't give me any reason to reject my initial view that the probability of its having done so is one half. Right? So to return to the sort of model of determinism given to us by Laplace, right? the expression of determinism in terms of this Laplacean genius for whom the future is no different than the past, it's true that in a kind of gambling situation, one wouldn't do well to place a bet against this Laplacean genius. But the reason that one wouldn't do well to place a bet against this Laplacean genius is not because of any privileged probabilistic knowledge that the genius possesses. It's rather that the genius is in a position where he doesn't have to assess probabilities at all. Because he has such a detailed and refined knowledge of the initial conditions of whatever process it is that we're betting on, he can simply deduce what the outcome of the process will be. But this is akin to simply observing the outcome in advance of its happening. So the reason you don't want to bet against this person, um, it's for the same reason that you wouldn't want to bet against a gambler with x-ray vision. It's not because he has some refined knowledge of the probabilities involved. It's rather because he can see the cards that you have. It may be that if forced to assess the probabilities of the outcomes of a coin toss, he, like us, would assess the coin as being fair. Uh, the advantage that the Laplacian genius has over us is that he has an alternative route for assessing what the outcome of the process will be, which doesn't require that he should actually go to the trouble of assessing those probabilities. So whatever conceptual difficulties may arise from this conception of a Laplacian genius, I would argue that they don't arise from the fact that he, of necessity, would assign only probability one to a current event. Rather, it's that it's hard to imagine any reason why he should engage in probabilistic reasoning at all. So in your view, determinism is compatible with objective probabilities because deductive reasoning is not an extreme case of probabilistic reasoning. So what is the upshot of this view? Well, so, I mean, I think that one of the upshots is that philosophers can perhaps start to pay a little more attention to the concept of objective probability. We can start to try to develop perhaps plausible theories of objective probability. Whereas, as a result of some of these apparent tensions, I think the direction of the philosophy of probability has tended to move towards a more subjectivist or epistemic conception of probability. But I think that, in fact, there's no reason to give up on our, our kind of naive intuitions that probabilities are, in fact, in the world. Right? They're the sorts of things which may enter into the content of a physical theory. And as a result, philosophers who are interested in exploring the concept of probability can propose and explore and criticize various analyses of the concept of objective probability without worrying about sort of stepping on the toes of metaphysicians, right? We needn't worry that by discussing objective probability, we're somehow conceding to an indeterministic worldview. Uh, and I think that's an important point for us to recognize. Another important upshot of this whole conversation is that it may force us to rethink the relationship between inductive and deductive logic. Generally speaking, many people have approached the idea of inductive logic by thinking about it as a generalization of deductive logic, whereas now we should recognize that, in fact, inductive logics are, in a certain sense, 
more intentionally laden than deductive logics. What that means is that they're going to be more language dependent than deductive logics. And it's important, I think, for clarifying certain debates in the history of inductive logic to try to make these kinds of language dependencies clear. In particular, I think we should recognize that when theories of inductive logic have been proposed historically, or in the context of the proposed theories of inductive logic that have been put forward in the 20th century, for example, say Carnap's inductive logics, the language is playing a much more important role in determining the inductive relations that obtain between propositions than is the case in corresponding deductive logics. What is language doing? The language, in essence, is defining for us a certain procedural context. The idea is that it's setting up for us a kind of conceptual experiment within which it makes sense now to speak about the probabilities of events. The conceptual experiment is one in which God, say, chooses among the maximally informative state descriptions expressible in the language which one will obtain. Uh, The experiment consists in choosing a model for the language. The language doesn't play that role in deductive contexts, and there are various ways of indicating this. So, for example, if you take an ordinary first-order language, various deductive relationships obtained between sentences in the language, if we were to refine the language um, by, say, making the elementary sentences more descriptive, introducing new possibilities beyond those characterized at the level of elementary sentences in the language, the deductive relationships between sentences expressible in the original language may not change. But in refining the language and making it more expressive, now the inductive relationships between sentences in the language may differ quite radically. And so we see that in the context of inductive logic, the choice of what sentences are to count as basic or elementary plays a role that it doesn't play in deductive logic. So I'm wondering what someone committed to an epistemic interpretation of probability would say to your example. So it sounds like the difference between me and the Laplacian genius is that the Laplacian genius has all the requisite information you need to make deductive arguments about what will happen next, whereas I lack the same information. Right. And it seems like someone who's committed to an epistemic interpretation of probability will say that that is exactly what you would expect on the epistemic interpretation. In other well, words... So if a person interprets probability in epistemic terms, right, then the fact that your epistemic state differs quite considerably from the epistemic state of a Laplacian genius suggests that the probabilities that you assign to events will also differ. In particular, if this person believes that the world is a deterministic place, then it will follow that the Laplacian genius will only ever assign probability 1 to events, to actually occurring events, rather. The only probabilities he'll ever assign to events are probability 1 or 0. The fact that we assign intermediate probabilities, say, to the outcomes of a simple game of chance, expresses the imperfect nature of our epistemic state. What I would like to say, what I think the appropriate view to have on the matter is, and this is available to someone who subscribes to an objective or a physical interpretation of probability, is that it's entirely possible for the Laplacian genius to agree with us about our judgments of probability. He may not, but there's no necessity that he shouldn't, even in a deterministic world. So even though the Laplacian genius is in fact able to deduce what the outcome of a coin toss will be, that itself doesn't require that he assigns to that outcome a probability of one. And so a position available to someone who adopts an objective or physical interpretation of probability is that the differences between our epistemic state and the epistemic state of a Laplacian genius uh, need not manifest themselves in differences in our probabilistic assessments. Anubhav Vasudevan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.